Hello, everybody, and welcome to another interview for my blog and podcast, A Rich Comic Life. My name is Richard Gill, and my blog describes my experiences of watching over 1,000 comedians and counting over the last 48 years. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Oliver Double. Hello, mate. How are you? How are you? You all right? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yes, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for doing it. It's 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 an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, you've been uh, teaching and researching comedy and popular performance at the University of Kent since 1999. And before that, you were a stand-up comedian. How did you become a comedian in the first place, please? Right. Uh, first thing I'm going to say is I do tend to go on a bit. So if I ages, <laughs> feel free to interrupt at any point. So I, I was studying drama uh, in the 1980s at university and I was really interested in comedy. I mean, I had been since I was a little kid. You know, I'd really enjoyed all the usual things, really, for people my age. I mean, things like Monty Python, The Goodies, Morecambe and Wise, you know, all those kind of things. And, and I was aware that there was this thing called alternative comedy at the time because I'd watched the young ones. And I also used to watch on TV. They used to occasionally have these sort of charity gigs. Uh, so, you know, for Nicaragua or, or whatever it was. And, you know, I'd seen people like Ben Elton and Andy De La Tour and Rick Mayall doing stand-up on TV. So I was aware that there was this thing that was happening. And... When I was in my first year, so it had been 1983-84, I went to a thing called the Chaotic Cabaret in one of the student bars. And it was 20, it was 20 p to get in. Anybody <laughs> could get up and do something. And it was singers and poets and comedians, really, mainly, and sketches, I suppose, as well. I'll tell you, somebody who was on the bill, that very first one I went to was John O'Farrell, who went on to become a comedy writer and novelist. There's these books, brilliant, yeah. Yeah, so he he was doing a skinhead character, a comedy oh skinhead character, um, and it was really funny. And I just look, I there was something about that night that I'd never seen a kind of cabaret slash variety slash live stand up thing. I'd never seen anything like that live. Obviously, I'd seen things on TV, but I'd never seen it live. And up to that point, I thought, oh, maybe I'll start a band or something, and maybe do something with music. But I just looked at it and I just went, this is fantastic. <laughs> I suppose the closest thing I'd seen to that at that point would, would have been John Cooper Clark. I'd seen yeah, yeah. where I grew up. And I just thought it was brilliant. And I really wanted to do something. And I just didn't have the guts to get up and do something that night without a plan or any preparation. So next time they did one, which was probably a few weeks later, I went with a plan. <laughs> I, I had a little character bit that I'd written and I did a little two-hander sketch with my friend. And then I also did a third act, that second show, which was just completely improv because I loved it. I just loved it. And in fact, you got paid a can of beer to get up and perform. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I, so I started doing little bits wherever there was a chance to get up and do a bit, I would do a bit. So, you know, the summer ball at the end of my first year, I think I got my first professional gig in that I got paid, I think, 20 pounds <laughs> to, to get up and do a bit. And I have to say, I was on on that occasion uh at something like 3 a.m 
Wow. To the sleepy drunks. It was really, <laughs> it was really, I think I was doing like maybe half an hour or so, which is way too much for my abilities at that point. And anyway, I just kept doing it through my degree. And when I graduated, I, I kept doing it wherever there was an opportunity. I was in Exeter yeah. and there wasn't that much. In, there wasn't a regular comedy night or anything like that. But, but they would do benefit gigs and they it was always a mixture of acts and they would be in various different venues. Basically, any time I had to perform, I, I, any chance I got to perform, I would do that. And then my, uh, my old professor said to me, you know, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Because at that point I was, I was probably on benefits doing just things like that every now and then. And, and I went on to do a PhD about stand-up. Uh, which which was really he sowed the seeds for that a guy called Peter Thompson yeah and when I then went to I so I went to uh, to Exeter to start that in ninety sorry from Exeter to Sheffield to start that in nineteen eighty seven and while I was doing my PhD I mean I took it just a step further so I started a little group of comedians we used to do regular shows. We took a show to Edinburgh in 89. Right. And then we started, yeah, we started selling ourselves as a package. We started doing gigs round and about, local pubs, also further afield. We took ourselves wherever we could find somewhere. Little found out that there were little cabaret nights elsewhere in nearby cities. So we'd go there and do that. And it just grew from there. That's how how it started, really. That's extraordinary. I mean, I mean, my first ever gig. Uh, was aged seven on a holiday to Scarborough with the family, and we went to see Les Dawson, who was just Amazing. incredible. And then the following year, we saw Tommy Cooper, and I got and I got the bug, and I just thought there is something about sitting in an audience and laughing loudly at them. I I, I wasn't aware of the laugh until we saw Tom O'Connor at Torquay. And he walked on and I burst out laughing at his jokes and it floored him. He had to leave the stage and then come back on again. I didn't realise realize that it was that funny. And everywhere I go, thank God, I should get this laughing steward because <laughs> they all know who I am. And it's just the most wonderful thing. What's not to love about going to an enclosed environment and, and making people making you laugh comedians making you laugh i've 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 got such a an admiration for 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 you to be able to do it it's 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 just well, wonderful as a punter i mean i should probably add that obviously i've i've seen lots of comedians that i like over the years yeah. and one of them that i'm going to mention now is probably not that fashionable anymore uh but somebody I, the first proper big gig that i saw big comedy gig was ben elton on his first yeah. tour in 1986 and I think somebody might have even bought me a ticket for that I can't remember but I remember the gig and I just I'd seen him on TV uh, but I don't think anything had prepared me for how funny he was yeah when he didn't have to worry about saying a rude word and yeah. and, and and when it was just one big lump of stuff yeah it wasn't yeah. just a little five minute chunk or something this was like a two-hour show yeah yeah and it was incredibly funny and well written and he was funny as well. I mean, his stupid glittery suit and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I just, 
uh, and it, it was just there were so many ideas in there. It was just popping with ideas and words and thoughts and observations. And I, I get why people kind of turned against him, but I, I, but at the same time, I just think that he is a brilliant comedian. He's he's much more of a material based comedian. He's not one of those people like Tommy Cooper who could just be funny by yeah. being there. But I also think you shouldn't underestimate his skill as a performer. I mean, I saw him, I've seen him many times live, but one time I saw him and he had flu. And it made it better in a way because his voice was growly and he sounded like <laughs> dragged himself from his sick bed. And, you know, the fact that he was so pissed off with things, you know, <laughs> uh, he, the fact that he had to in his yeah, voice, yeah, yeah. it kind of made it more exciting in a way. He is he is an extraordinary comedian. I uh, my home city is Carlisle, but I've lived I've lived and worked in London half my life. Yeah. And I went to college in Stoke and we oh, saw yeah. Ben Elton there. And and I think it was the same tour because it was 86 to 88. And I saw him in Stoke, and then I saw him about a month or so later in Carlisle. And the, the thing I found fascinating about him was that depending on his audience, he had different material. So in 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 Stoke, he, it was all directed towards students, and in Carlisle, it was all directed to Northerners. <laughs> and he kept looking at his watch, and he was timing the lap. It was ex- it was an extraordinary thing to to watch him do. And then and then a month or so later, or six months or so later, we were very lucky to see Rick Mail in Carlisle, and he was sported by Andy De La Tua. And yeah. yet again, the contrast between the two was it was all patter with Ben Elton and the visual comedy from Rig Mail was extraordinary. And yeah. it was one of the greatest nights I've ever seen. Um, anyway, let's get back to you. Uh, describe yeah. your first gig then. So you say it was about 1989 time, somewhere like that? No, it would have been, my first gig would have been, goodness me, it was probably early 1984. I was still a first-year student. Right. But I'm going to take you forward, actually, from there, because so I'm going to take you forward to, I guess, maybe early 1986. That's my guess. So what happened was I'd been doing it for a while. And the first night of the Exeter Art Centre, I'm not even sure it's a venue anymore. I, I, if, if, if it's around anymore, it's changed its name. But there was this thing, the Exeter, Exeter Art Centre. It opened, I think, in 1986. And, and I went along to do the first night. They were doing a cabaret. And I'd done, you know, I'd done a few gigs. So, you know, I kept doing it as often as I could. And I had two bits of material was all I had. Uh, it was like a, a silly kind of rap and a silly song. Ridiculous. I couldn't play very well. I couldn't do that very well. But what I remember was that I, I had this pair of massive boxer shorts that somebody had given me. And I thought it'd be quite funny to come out with a, Boy Scout scarf around my neck, these big boxers shorts, army boots. And then a friend just before I went on lent me some Ray-Ban sunglasses. Yeah, yeah. And I went, okay, well, I'm just going to walk out. This is a funny way to dress to go on stage. So I'll, I'll go out and I'll do that. And what happened was I walked on, and that was like a real big moment for me because what happened was there was just, I walked on, there was this enormous, like stupidly big laugh. And I think everybody else who'd been on so far in the cabaret had been doing quite, quite carefully constructed things like, yeah, a sketch or a character monologue or something like that. 
And, and I just played with the reaction that I got with the audience. I just played with it. I just improv <laughs> loads of stuff. And people just went mad for it. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I did the things I prepared as well. Yeah. But I was like a side note to the main thing that happened, which was that I clicked with an audience in a way that I hadn't before. It's not that I hadn't got anything from an audience before, but I'd never had that kind of visceral response. And then what happened was for the next year, maybe, I was trying to get that back. And I was sometimes getting it back and sometimes not. And I think that's a quite a typical pattern, really, that you at first you have you have maybe one early gig which really hits, and then it's like, okay, how do I get it to be like that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was just an amazing moment. I'll never forget it. I've got photographs of that night. Sadly, not a recording. I wish I had a recording of it. So, so would you say that was the point where you thought, yes, I can do this for a living for a while? Or was there a point? Was there ever a point in your comedy career where that happened? Probably that moment, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's because that's fascinating. I do, I do ask a lot of comedians, was there a moment? And a lot of them do say yes because it's like. You know, you know, you can do this, and I and I say to them, um, it must all be about experience. You must have to experience a difficult gig to yeah. become a better comedian, and this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there a pattern that you had when you were on stage? What did you like to talk about? Were there any specific themes or anything, or was it just of the time? Yeah, I mean, I I think I, I mean I still perform a little bit. Uh, in I compare yeah. a, a monthly club at the local theatre, and I do material for that every every show. Yeah, um, and I think what as a much older person, I think I talk about things that in some ways are very different, and in other ways are really similar. So I've always been quite interested in politics. I've always been quite interested in pop culture, and. I suppose I've also always been interested in a quite like bawdy humour, like like rude stuff, like like little, you know, the childish glee of <laughs> sex, toilets and swearing, basically. And, uh, we've, so we've, I, we've, we've never met and I'm so glad we have. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I think I think that's that's the kind of thing. I mean, I did an early piece that I did, which was based on a, it was originally a sketch that I did with a with a, friend, a couple of friends, and then I, I adapted it into a solo bit. But there was a bit where well, it changed quite a lot actually when when I sort of made it my own bit. But it was called Scooby Doo meets the Sandinistas, and it was a whole bit about Scooby Doo. I played all the characters, but also it was about the socialist government in Nicaragua. And it kind of, that's that's like peak me, really. You know, you've got a cartoon, and you've got sort of politics and um i still think that's i think the way i approach it's probably different but those are those right. are things that i i'm interested in you know like i don't know the, the minutiae of pop culture and music and stuff but also you know like politics and, yeah 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 rudeness that, that is probably it i could probably got some sort of better it's so good as i say because my my dad god bless his soul his legacy he was a union man and he became president of nalgo in the 80s and he formed unison which is now the union and it's like good god this is extraordinary everybody everybody uh, uses it a, a lot you know he was, he was one third of an amalgamation Amazing. And uh, I can remember, so that's the politics bit, and I can remember um, 
I would be 10 and my brother was 16 uh, when punk hit. And uh, we always used to listen to John Peel and I'd look, look in awe. And my, my, my brother makes adverts and he was drawing on the dining room table at the, the art A-level. And I was looking at, listening to all these incredible bands. And I caught the tail end of it with Scar and the Jam and Madness and all that. And I love my music as well. So, um, yeah, I feel as though I've known each, we've known each other for years. <laughs> well, no, it's classic. I mean, Paul was a really big influence. Um, and I still... Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things I do in my comparing now is I, I've settled into a pattern where, I mean, the club is monthly, so I've got time to work on things. Yeah. So I, I settled into a pattern where I not typically do two songs, like one which is a bit longer and a bit more thought out, and one which is a super topical, very short song. And they're pretty much all punk, all yeah. played on the mandolin. <laughs> you know. so, well, it changed so, everything. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a good medium because it's it, it was it was about simplicity and getting to the point mm. quickly and also use what have you got at your disposal that you can use? Great, use that, throw that at it. So that's kind of how I approach the whole business of, of what I'm gonna say on stage, really. That's wonderful. And and moving on from that, do you have a specific writing process when you go on stage? Do you do you write notes do you uh remember in your head how, how do you approach doing it i think it differs really i mean when, when i was doing the, the when i was doing comedy for my living i did a weekly comparing spot and for that what i would do is through the week for most of the week was panic what am i going to say on stage next week and then what i would do is every time i thought i'd read the paper every day trying to look for thing ideas from that it was a renewable source of potential material and then I would, I would sort of write down, if I had a half thought about something that could be funny, I would sort of write down, write that down on a piece of paper. Come Thursday, I would look at what I had on my paper. Hopefully there was five or six things. <laughs> and I would, I, would, I would sort of stand in a room and talk through how I was going to do that on stage. And so the process of writing was really talking it through. So that was also the process of learning it. It was the worst bit of the week for me because talking to yourself in a room, yeah. it makes you feel... A, in unhinged, and B, unfunny. Because, um, <laughs> you, you, I mean, unless you're a huge egotist, you're not imagining gales of laughter. You're just hearing the silence that surrounds you in the room as you're saying these things. That was how I did it then. Um, now, I would differ, really. I mean, for the monthly comparing, I don't write a lot down. I probably jot down an idea so I don't forget it. Yeah. But I'm ticking away thinking about it as I walk around or have a shower in the morning or whatever it is with the songs that I do, I have to actually practice those. So that I work quite hard at that. I think one of the reasons I do songs is because it's easier to practice, less sad practicing songs than practicing standup. Right. Um, and, but then the other thing I do, sometimes I'll do a longer show. I've done a couple of longer shows with that. It's really just writing down the ideas So I don't forget them. And then, yeah, I don't like it's the same sort of thing as I used to do really it's I don't like practicing them aloud but it's the only way I've got of getting them in my head I don't have a big enough audience to do warm-up gigs yeah 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 well, I've got the audience who will come to see the show and that's it so it's yeah. one shot at this so I have to really get it into my head well enough so that I can play in the moment as well and not worry about losing my place uh, so, but I, but I, what I'm not is the sort of person who writes it down word for word, and then learns it. I can't do that. Mm. That kills it for me. 
It has to be a thing of kind of getting. And, and then sometimes what you do is you've practiced it one way, but when you get in front of an audience, you just having people in front of you, you suddenly realize, oh no, it's better if I say it like this. Yeah, yeah. So, so it doesn't matter how much you've practiced it to get into your head, you've got to kind of hold open the possibility because it's a bit like talking to a real person rather than it's a little bit of an old reference this because people don't tend to leave voicemails as much but you know when you leave a voicemail it's awful because you know there's nobody listening (laughs) (laughs) so practicing stand-up is a bit like that yeah you know you you, it's really hard to focus whereas like this is quite easy because i'm looking at your face yeah i'm reading all the non-visual you know non-verbal visual cues and it's the same with an audience you're looking at them and you're listening to them and you have a sense of what's going on there and sometimes you just in the moment, you kind of go, oh, wait, that's the word I should say now. <laughs> it's funny because, um, two, you, you mentioned uh, the songs with the guitar. Two comedians instantly come to mind. One is Booth B. Graffo, who I've loved yeah. for years, and the other one's Mervyn Stutter. Every oh, yeah. we go and see him, and there's always a song at the start of the showcase, and it's such a good way of kicking off a show so you know if you've got a song at the top and a song in the middle of the bottom or whatever it, it breaks it down into chunks and you well, and the audience are listening all the time and you've got them with the song and everything it's, it's a wonderful uh, historically, idea historically there's a good reason why comedians t- used to but you know back back in the sort of pre-alternative days why they used to finish with a song mm. So there's a couple of reasons. One is that the, the stand-up, certainly in the way it evolved in the UK, was that what the, its main sort of source of its evolution was musical, which was primarily a comic song-based form, right? So there was that. So it's partly that. And then another reason is because in the variety theatre days, I mean, different comedians would do different numbers of songs, but you'd always finish with a song, and here's why. Because when you were starting out, or possibly when you were on the way back down, you'd be the second spot comic. Yeah. So how it would work is they play the overture and then they would do that's just the, the theatre orchestra playing a tune. And then they would you would have the first act, which is typically a couple of dancers. So they would do a short tap routine or whatever. And then you'd come on, you'd be the second spot comic. The audience is not that worked up. They don't have a compare, it's just numbers at the side of the stage. So there's no compare taking the edge off the audience. So you're going on to a comparatively cold audience. Also, the way that audiences behaved in those days was different from today. Today, audience expects to applaud the act onto the stage. Uh, you know, it, and, if, and if, you, if that didn't happen today, that would be something you could joke about as the comedian. That's happened to me before. You make a joke at the fact the audience didn't applaud you on. But actually, in that day and age, mid-20th century, it wasn't the norm unless you were famous to applaud the act onto the stage. Yeah, yeah. But also, if they didn't like you, they might not even applaud at the end. So you'd be walking off to the sound of your own feet, which is grim. Whereas if you finish with a song, it's kind of hard for them not to applaud. So they're gonna, even if they hate yeah, it, yeah. they're likely to applaud at the end, which gives you a chance to, to get off stage with dignity. That's that is fascinating. It's that's a fascinating answer. It reminds me of the Ken Dodd line where where he's describing laughter. I've seen Ken Dodd many times describing laughter and he, and, and it's saying it comes up, up into your body and then it comes out and he, he goes into an elongated routine about it. And he goes, he goes, Freud said that laughter was X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, he said, mind you, 
Freud didn't play Glasgow Empire on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's a really specific reference because Donald yeah, started yeah, yeah. Variety. I mean, he started in the latter days of Variety, but yeah. I mean, the Glasgow Empire was. I've interviewed people who who played it, and the thing they particularly didn't like was English comedians, yeah. uh, because it was a sort of tribal thing, really. Of you know, we we're proud of our city, and you know, you know, I mean, there's still a bit of that in Scotland now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it was particularly Friday night because that's the end of the working week for a lot of people. And I think particularly second house because they've had a few by that point. <laughs> and what I think they would do is throw throw the screw. You can't imagine. <laughs> throw the beer bottle tops at the person, you know, on the stage. And and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a rite of passage, really. I mean, yeah, they yeah. might. You know, the rest of the week, 12 shows a week in variety, typically two shows a night, Monday till Saturday. Mm. And, you know, so they might you might have had a decent time up to that point. But that Friday night is where you've got to. And then apparently it could also be a problem on the Saturday if there was a England v Scotland match, for example. Of course. <laughs> particularly if it went, if, particularly if England won. Then that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. it. Um, uh, I I had a go at stand-up comedy once uh, in my uh, illustrious career. I've, I've I've told a lot of comedians this. Um, it was a gong show, and it was uh, I, I knew the promoter who was doing it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, have a go." I said, "Well, I can remember routines and and jokes and things from the comedians I've seen," and he said, "Well, yeah, it's a gong show. It's an old folks gong show." And um, uh, it couldn't be worse. And and uh, he said, he said, you've got three minutes, uh, you walk on, and if you're not really good, they gong you off. So I wrote this script about um, being accident prone in a car in Carlisle, and I thought it was quite good, and he loved it. So I walked out, and I, <laughs> there's three people in the audience. And the first thing I said was, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. People think I look like Eddie the Eagle Edwards, the ski jumper, but I can't see the resemblance myself. Now, when I was at college, they used to stop lectures because I was his brother. <laughs> but there was not one word. This old bloke just went, fuck off. <laughs> and I said to the promoter, I said, I don't know whether I could do this as a full-time job. Never say never, but certainly in the audience, that's that's where I should be. And that's what happened. But uh, it's it, it it's... It's it's an extraordinary thing if 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 you can do if you can do stand up well even if you can't do stand up well it's just getting up and having a go because yeah. you do you, you, I I would have regretted it if I never had a go and who knows you know what what's going to happen um, tell me more about your comedy club because when I researched you it was uh, it said it's Sheffield's longest running comedy club yeah, is that absolutely. clear yeah last just... laugh. So, so I I was part of the team that ran the last laugh from its inception in 1992, 30 years ago, till wow. 1997, and then that's when I moved from Sheffield to Liverpool. That's why I stopped being involved. And then, even then, I would occasionally go back for the next couple of years. So I think the last time I appeared there was maybe 99. Mm-hmm. Um, and what 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 it was? So. Um, I had been to do some gigs in Birmingham. And that's where Frank Skinner yeah. really kind of cut his teeth. And he would do comparing at the 4X. There were two 4X comedy clubs. There was one in Bearwood in Birmingham. There was one somewhere else I can't remember now. 
And then they also had two more gigs, one in Bristol and one in Cheltenham. And so you could go and do four night run for them. It was great. But the thing that really impressed me, and I'd seen Eddie Izzard um, doing the Screaming Blue Murder gigs in London as well. And Eddie was hey, yeah. brilliant, just a phenomenal comedian. Oh, he's extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. And, and the kind of the, the surrealism, the silliness, the mm. at, at that point still genuinely improvisational nature of it. Mm. And Frank Skinner was probably slightly less to my taste in that, you know, it's much more of a kind of ladsy humour, but he was brilliant. I mean, he was just... The thing is, you could look at it and go, he's just crude, but I think you'd be missing something. It was the delicacy and the skill with which you could explore very, very rude sexual situations. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that, that really got me about Frank Skinner was that he he was... I saw him. I did I did at least one where I did that run of of, of four gigs. So I did the, um, the, the Cheltenham, Bristol... Uh, the two Birmingham Bearwood and what I can't remember with Kings Heath, maybe the other one. And, um, uh, and I, and, and what impressed me was that the, okay. So the, the two Birmingham ones, he did the same set and he did maybe 40 minutes of material over the course of the night. And it was all gold, like really funny, <laughs> but, but, but also the same week he'd done different stuff at Cheltenham and Bristol because he was, he was just writing the whole time. And I just went, this is brilliant. That's clearly the thing yeah. to do is to get get a comparing gig, have to compare every week. And then you you I was a bit stuck in this in my same sort of 20-minute set, and I wanted to get out of that. Anyway, so I talked to one of the people who was part of the group that was with Roger Monkhouse. And, yeah. Yeah. and then we spoke to uh, some people who were running comedy in Sheffield at the time at Sheffield City Memorial Hall which I think is now where the last, last main gig is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were running a thing called Fool's Paradise. And so we got together with them and we, uh, actually around the same time, they'd done a series, a run of gigs in Sheffield pubs with Tony Allen, one of the original yeah, yeah, yeah. comedians. And I, I'd seen one of those and it was absolutely brilliant. So there was obviously something in the air. But there hadn't been at that point, there hadn't been a weekly pub-based comedy club in Sheffield, not to my knowledge. There'd been things, lots of things had happened. Like there'd been a Linda Smith and Warren Lakin had done a thing, um, a sort of new variety night. And and people had done different things. But that kind of weekly club, getting acts from around the country, mainly London, but also Birmingham, Newcastle, Bristol, round and about, Manchester particularly, Nobody had done that. And so we got together with Simon and Charlie from uh, Falls Paradise and we, we, we ran a season of, you know, a weekly club for maybe 13 weeks. And then what happened was we had a bit of a uh, fallout with them and I stayed on as compare. Roger was out of it for a bit. Then Simon pulled, it was all complicated. Simon pulled out, but Charlie wasn't working for Simon anymore. So Simon, Charlie came in with us. Anyway, yeah. we went on for a bit and eventually it ended up just being me, me and Roger. So Roger would programming i would be the weekly compare and then we got a second venue so roger would compare that one i would compare this one and what we would do was we, we we were able to get two acts from wherever much more cheaply to do two shows in one night than we could yeah. if it was two shows over two nights so we would get one to open at one show and then close at the other and then we would have people to drive them between and then swapping over. So I would have 
you know, one opening and then the, the other one would then come to close at my, at the Lescar in, in, yeah, in yeah, yeah. Bar, Sheffield. And uh, I can't say that I was brilliant as a compost straight away. First night went really well. And then the second week is where it starts to bite because you realise you've got to come up with something every week. <laughs> but although I, I can't pretend to be anything on the same universe of talent as, as Eddie Izzard and Frank Skinner, what it did do was meant I always had some topical material because yeah. you had to. You just had to kind of get material every week. You had to get stuff to say on stage. Um, and we, yeah, we ran it for five years. Uh, we had some really brilliant acts who went on to become really famous. Um, I mean, who did we have? We had uh, Graham Norton and um, Milton Jones, yeah, Dylan Moran, and loads of brilliant people. And some people who didn't go on to become famous, but all, all also brilliant. Bob Dillinger, Rory Motion, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just really great. And it, and then what? eventually ended up in the hands of Toby Foster, who I think done his first open spot for us. And it's still, as far as I'm aware, still runs today. It must be 30 this year. So, Well, congratulations. That's fantastic. What a legacy yeah. that is. Yeah. I mean, I'm super happy because it was, it was a really important time for me. And I'm really happy that it's still going. And Sheffield's a brilliant city. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just a really, really lovely thing to be involved in. That's brilliant. I I go to a regular comedy club every week. I, I go to Always Be Comedy at Kennington. And I was looking for a venue that reminded me of the Edinburgh Fringe, just a room, and there's loads of pubs and everything. And uh, when I first went, it, this would be five years ago, it was um, Josh Widdicombe was the headline act, who I absolutely love. And I was sitting about halfway back, and he collared me that night on my laugh. And I thought, well, I don't realize, I don't really think I'm that loud. Then they got me to sit on the front row and I've been sitting there ever since. And my confidence has gone through the roof because all the comedians that they get on feature me in the racks because uh, <laughs> of the laugh and all the rest of it. And I get up and I do a, I do a song. And of course the joke is I can't sing a note and, it's just wonderful, and it's it's like part of the family. And and James Gill, who we are not related, I wish we were, because my name's Richard Gill. Um, yeah. uh, he's so so good at, at getting everybody together and warming them up. And um, do, do you think that comparing is a? Uh, do you prefer comparing to stand-up routines, or do you think they're two different things? I mean, they're. they're... They cross over massively. What I enjoy about yeah. comparing is no expectation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just delighted if you're funny. <laughs> I think as well, how I approach it is, I know, like, I don't do it, I don't think, in a very conventional way. Um, I, I'm always trying to think of things to do with an audience so it doesn't feel like it's material that I've gone away and written. Uh, so I always try to think of like weird audience participation bits or, or yeah. things like that. <laughs> so I do a thing, I, I've never been able to do crowd work. I just don't have the mind or the memory for it. I don't, mm -hmm. I can't, I, people tell me their name and I won't remember that name. I mean, that's <laughs> one of the things about it. You've got to be able to remember who you've talked to. And also when people say, I mean, the typical things people talk to when they're doing crowd work is 
what do you do for a living? Are you two together? And I'm those. I'm not that interested in those topics. So, <laughs> so, so I have a book called Stupid Questions, where the audience have to volunteer for it. I don't pick people out. And I've written something like 130 questions in a book, and then they have to give a number, and then I go through, and the questions might be, I'll give you an example of one that I've written recently. It's if you bought a book called Cooking with Jamie, and instead of being recipes written by the TV chef Jamie Oliver, it was recipes of how to prepare the caucus, uh, carcass of TV chef Jamie Oliver for the table. <laughs> Would you be th- disappointed or delighted? So that's, <laughs> that's the question, right? That's so brilliant. The table, so, <laughs> so hopefully the question itself is quite funny. But then sometimes people's answers to those questions, often those answers are really funny. And especially... If work, yeah, 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 yeah. Then, then um, that's, that, that's the kind of thing I like to do. And what you're really trying to do... What you're trying to do is you're trying to change the audience from a room full of people to an audience that has kind of an interest in the show uh, and, you know, uh, and, and it believes that this is going to be a funny show yeah. uh, and that are willing to join in and, and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that's quite an important role. And I'm that's trying brilliant. to do it in a slightly unconventional way. Well, I think that idea is brilliant, and I would love to come to Sheffield when you're comparing and see you do oh, it. Oh, no, no, that's in Canterbury now, because I'm based Oh, in Canterbury, in right. Okay. So, well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come, find come out there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Let's, let's move on. Um, I've been very lucky for the last 15, 16 years to go to Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Fringe, and that's my holiday. I go there... For a week, I see 50 shows. I all, A lot of friends of mine come up, and we just have the best time. I, and I do one of my infamous spreadsheets, planning everything. Um, what was your first Edinburgh Fringe like? Uh, what year did you first go up? Um, when did you first perform there? Right. I, I'm, I, surprisingly, I haven't been that many times to the Fringe, and I've only right. been to, to, to actually perform as an actual stand-up once. Right. Um, and it's because I didn't either have the money or the time is, is the key thing. Um, and, you know, like money is like, I mean, I didn't have, I never really had an agent, so I never had somebody to take me up. So it's always a big financial risk. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, since I've been doing other work, like working in university, it's it's I've had the money, but then you know, have you got the time? So I've been upset, you know, a number of times over the years. But the first one I went to was also the first one I performed at, or the only one I performed as as such, which was the Edinburgh Fringe 1989. Right. And it was a really interesting experience. We managed to get accommodation with a student company that was booking a place and we I think we rented rooms off them in a sort of shared house I think there were five of us I think sharing a room so four acts and then we had a front of house person who did all the tech and everything um we were on at the Sonic Lodge I think it was yeah uh, venue 33 I think it memory serves our show was called Comedy Abattoir we were called Red Grape Cabaret the poster was a we had this cartoon grape with, with, you know, with the face and legs and arms. <laughs> and he, he was, or they, I suppose, one, the gender non-specific grape, uh, had, was in a spotlight with, with a microphone stand and then had a kind of Freddy Krueger claw in the, in the cartoon. <laughs> and we were lucky enough to go from 
nobody had heard of us to we were very lucky with our reviews so we had we we, we got i think we got a we got listed as pick of the day in the independent and we got in the scotsman and we got in some of those ones you know those review 89 those kind of ones and so we went from a very you know kind of you know mixed audience some days two people some days 20 to selling out by the end and we also had really nice that there was a show went up called oh God, i'm not allowed to remember the name of it now but either dembina had taken it up oh uh, comic abuse i think it was called. yes was it yeah it was something like maybe, that yeah something like that maybe i've got mixed up with somebody else but anyway it was either dembina and it was him um jim Taveray. Patrick Marber, who went on to become a very well-known playwright. Wow. And Jack D. That was the wow. lineup. And it was, it was really anyway, they came to see our show and they invited us to theirs, which which was which was really, really good. Um, and we went to watch, you know, a number of different things. We went to watch one with Joe Brandon and uh went to see some theater things, you know. Uh and it, you know, a lot of staying up late, a lot of getting drunk, a lot of eating chips with salt and sauce um you know We're a lot of hiring. <laughs> i remember being near steve coogan and mike haley had a show called seaside special and i remember right. seeing in in deck chairs with you know the knotted hankies on the head to giving out flyers very close to us <laughs> i think i remember playing the fringe club and it was very heckly and i had a bit heckling at the beginning and i managed to say some things off the top of my head and win the audience over and kind of storm it a little bit. But I remember seeing the Doug, Doug Anthony All-Stars. Oh, yeah. And they were just brilliant, brilliant at that, at the Fringe Club. And, and I remember them talking to me and being quite nice about, they'd seen me do that and being, oh, that was great, mate. You know, that that's, kind of that's, thing. That's, that's fantastic because there's so many wonderful, unforgettable memories that it, that it, yeah. that it gives you and you think this is extraordinary for a month in august you're you're at the biggest arts festival in in the world and it's not just comedy it's theater it's music yeah. it's film and everything just combines it it's it's just an extraordinary thing um i saw you in 2015 yeah uh, on your show talking comedy at the fringe yeah. And the two that I saw, which were fascinating, were Alexi Sale and Joe Brand. And I think it was the 30th year of the Gilded Balloon. Um, how did you find that? Because you were interviewing them. Um, well, presumably they were a joy to listen to like this is now. Yeah. It, well, I'd done a number of things over the years where I'd sort of interviewed comedians on stage through... Yeah. I don't really know how it started, but I, you know, I can't even remember what my first one, but, you know, I'd, I'd done these events where I'd talked to, to people like Joe Brand, um, Ross Noble, and actually Sale. And th this had become a thing that I sort of learned how to do. And then my friend Warren Lakin, who was Linda Smith's partner, and, oh, and ran, yeah, I mean, Warren's absolutely diamond geezer. Yeah. super lovely guy and obviously yeah. Linda was lovely and a brilliant comedian and um, Warren just said oh we want to do this thing talking comedy it was at the assembly rooms I think we were two different venues that's right yeah yeah 
and uh and and he already had some people lined up but he said who who would you like to get and so we we talked about ideas and one of the things i wanted to get was i wanted to make sure that there was a blend an equal blend of men and women and then i also wanted other forms of diversity so we had some sort of uh, it wasn't all white acts and we had you know yeah. uh, people who were lgbtq plus and we also had uh, nina conti who's not obviously a stand-up as such mm. and it was i was so pleased that all of that was warren sorted it so well and it was a mixture as well of people that i'd met before and people in some cases that i'd spoken to before and sort of interviewed before either on stage or just interviewed for research and then people i'd never met before at all but i was just a fan of yeah and it was just brilliant we did six shows in six days uh some in a smaller venue and some in the big the big venue yeah yeah and every one of them i i just loved i just loved it it was just a joy and um I it was just I tell you I'll tell you a memory actually I, I interviewed Susan Kalman who I've, mm-hmm. I've met met a few times and she's I think she's a lovely person a brilliant comedian yeah but she is considerably shorter than me I'm quite a tall man <laughs> and I'm quite interested in the particular thing that the 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 body that the comedian inhabits and how they make use of it the face the stance the voice. Yeah. The thing that makes you, I think, fundamentally part of what, why you relate to a comedian, why you relate to this one and maybe don't relate to that one. I think it's tied up in the, in the person they are. And that starts with the physical being that they are. So I often ask comedians about that. And then, I, you know, I go out from that. How do you choose to wear what, you know, what, why do you wear what you wear on stage? And comedians are surprisingly thought out about that. Like, for example, a number of comedians talk to me just about the shoes they choose to wear. But anyway, I was talking to to Susan Kalman about this and two things one is that she started gently ribbing me for it the fact that I as a much taller person was asking about this why are you obsessed with this but then the <laughs> other thing was we were on chairs that were quite tall chairs and she started doing that with her legs <laughs> <making> her legs <laughs> go back and forth and uh, she was just so playful and I mean she's brilliant she is brilliant people. yeah she's brilliantly kind of you know intelligent and and thought out but at the same time there's a sort of silliness there that i really relate to it's so endearing really endearing yeah yeah yeah, and then the other thing the other one i mean you know every single one i enjoy but another one that that really sticks out was nina conti i hadn't met her before Mm. and Mm. she said i brought monkey with me but don't get me to get him out too early or we won't get a word (laughs) in edgeways right (laughs) brilliant and i was one of the things i said to her was i asked her about the thing about you know splitting because one of the things i think is brilliant about nina conti i think she's a lots of things are brilliant but i think the thing that i think is amazing is how not only is monkey a brilliant character and the other characters she do, does but also she as events when she's playing particularly opposite monkey like her character is brilliantly contrasting with monkey so she does the embarrassed laughter so convincingly yeah like yeah said that outrageous thing that she's now embarrassed about in the guise of monkey and so we, i was asking her about that and i was asking her about you know you know that if monkey was real and she said well in a way monkey is real and it was a brilliant idea for me i thought she said but in a way he's real in the sense that bart simpson is real in that 
exactly. It's a character thinking, that we you know. all understand. It's not a real person that thinks, but it's a real person that we all can, if we've heard of that person, that we all know how that character works. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. in our collective imagination, that character is as real as anything. Right? She, she, she is extraordinary because um, I, I always remember the sketch where um, she adopts Monkey's voice and Monkey adopts her voice and Monkey is in total control of that sketch and it's extraordinary and you think, this thing's alive! <laughs> and when, yeah. you said, when you said Bart Simpson, it was amazing because that's what I think. Yeah, she must have been fascinating to talk to. She was amazing and yeah. genuinely interesting person. And I think one of the things I love about talking to and knowing comedians is that they mm. they tend to I think people can romanticize this a bit but actually over a long period I've thought about it a lot and I think it's true I think comedians are are different from most people in that it's not that nobody else is like this but I think that they've often got a slightly eccentric or outsider point of view so yeah. I think probably the comedian that I know the best is probably Mark Thomas I mean we're pretty right. I hope you won't mind me saying this, but we have pretty good friends. You know, I really, really love Mark. And, you know, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Really super lovely guy. And I think it, without a kind of single mindedness and a, and a kind of slight difference in the way that he sees the world, I just don't think that he could be that comedian that he is. I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing the, the thing I find fascinating and I've now interviewed over over 100 of, of the comedians is um, I start off. I've, I've, I've never done any interviewing before or any chatting before online or anything. But what I find is I have a um, sketch outline of what I'm going to ask the comedians. You do your research. You know I mean? But um, every one of them has got a different story even although you're sticking to the same sort of script. And I find that fascinating. I don't know, I don't know what it is because you're, 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 you're there in the audience watching them on stage. And then afterwards, they're like going, oh, was I really that good? Or, and the confidence suddenly drops. You say, yeah, yeah, that was amazing. You know? and, and, and so one of the reasons why I think my blog works, it's not just famous comedians it's like supporting everybody who's yeah. willing to get up and have a go and uh it's a it's it's a wonderful thing that that uh that that, that you've done i think it's i think it's fantastic let's move on to your teaching itself so yeah. um how did you get into teaching comedy performance and tell me more about the course that you teach well i think i'd started doing workshops before i before I worked in universities and this came about through various reasons sometimes people would just ask me to do something and occasionally I would get a university asked paid me some money to go come and do some workshops with their students and then I got a job in 1997 what happened was through various family circumstances which I probably won't go into right now it became important for me to be earning a, a, a bit more of a reliable wage and probably slightly more than I was making from comedy at the time. But it was more the, more the reliable thing. Around the time we started having kids, I mean, it was all tied up with that, to, to yeah. put it simply. And so I started, I thought, well, I need, a prop, I need a proper job, as it were, and I need that. And I thought, what can I do? And I thought, well, okay, 
I've, I've got a PhD. I've, I've got this industrial experience, as it were, I've been a comedian and I've done got some experience of working in universities and I've written a book. So that probably seems like maybe, you know, working in universities, find a drama course, see if I can get a job. And I got a job working initially at John Moore's in Liverpool, which I did for a couple of years. And at first I was just teaching just regular drama stuff. So, you know, an improvisation course or something like that. And then in my, yeah, it would have been in my first year, but my second term of teaching, they said, look, we have this thing called specialist workshop where anybody who's working here who has a specialism can teach their specialism and students sort of opt for it within that module. Would you like to do something on stand-up? And I said, yeah, all right. And I had to think about how to make that work. And it was a bit of a pressure gig because Granada TV came to film that first series of workshops um, because they were making a little docu-soap bit for a just a local programme. Right. And they made a little docu-soap out of it. And the, the, the woman who was who was directing, it was super nice. And it made it not as dramatic as it could have been. But it, it was a bit of a pressure gig learning how to teach it in a more thoroughgoing way than I'd done before. Anyway, I, I did that for a, for, a, for a couple of years. And then I came to Kent in 99. And they basically allowed me to expand what I did. At one point, I had this year-long thing where we had this four-year degree. And students could specialise in stand-up for a whole year. and we. I got on doing a weekly show. I did that for 15 years, actually. It was, it was a big thing. And quite a few people who I taught went on to work in comedy in one way or another. And, uh, and then I also started teaching other things to do with my research. So I wrote a module called Popular Performance where they could do a thing project about variety or music hall or one I... I've taught most recently in that is about alternative cabaret of the 80s, which is now history. And wow. so students learn about Alexis Sale and Pauline Melville and Benjamin Zephaniah. And oh, then, they write, they, then they write their own acts in that same sort of, you know, in that same vein, really. And really, really what you're trying to do is to, within the course of a series of workshops, to get them ready to be in front of an audience and not just like if they were doing a play to do a fixed thing but it can be a fixed thing but they have to always be able to come off script if necessary and deal with something yeah, yeah, yeah. so how I base it is I have exercises but actually a lot of it is just getting them to write something every week try it out bit of feedback record themselves and then build their act that is basically the principle there's a lot more to it than that but that's at the core of it you you must get a lot out of teaching them because uh, watching them develop it's uh, it's another reason why i do the blog watching the comedians develop from young comedians to big stars is amazing you know because you keep it's all about experience i keep going back to the word experience and it's the same there i've been um many a, a friend's five minute uh, um, a comedy night friend in a pub who goes along and, and supports them all. And they're so grateful that somebody is there that they know. And it must be wonderful to, 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 to adapt it. I think, I, th I think it's a great thing that you've done moving from stand-up into teaching because um, one of the things, certainly from me, for me sitting in an audience, is it gave me confidence. 
and and of course they have to stand up and present and and there's all sorts of different avenues to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the things is if you teach something, I mean, people would say, I think the argument against teaching comedy that can make everybody come out the same, but I really try and focus on the individuality of the student. What is their worldview? What is their, the way they talk? You know, yeah. what is, what, what, what are their experiences? How, how, what is their sense of humour? And I really try and focus it on that. And then the other thing is you learn so much about comedy i think i know way more about comedy now than i did when i was doing it as for my living because you step back from it and you see how it works when you see different people doing it you can sort of work out how it works and you can start to give feedback which really helps them get to where they want to get to and yeah it's brilliant and like you say a huge part of it a huge I think this is not understood enough. Talent is really important. Right. But I think as important, if not more important, is attitude. Because actually, I think there are three things that go to being able to make a living from comedy as a comedian. One is talent. Two is persistence and attitude. And three is luck. Now, you can't do anything about luck, but you can do a hell of a lot about the other two. Talent is constantly work to improve your material and your performance. So really work at it. Pay attention, record yourself, listen to it back, work out how it could go better, how you could change that bit, make it better. Persistent. Don't be put off by an audience that doesn't like what you do. Listen back to the recording, work out why it went wrong. What could you have done differently? And, And actually, if you work on the talent, you work on your persistence, then the luck takes care of itself. Eventually you'll get in front of somebody. So somebody like Laura Lex, who I taught as, as an undergrad, Laura was always great, always a super clever, super creative person who took risks and everything like that, took creative risks. But the other thing about Laura that was amazing was she was like a terrier even then with, she would not be put off. She would keep <laughs> putting herself determined. out there. <laughs> so determined. And, and she went from being somebody who was great, but... It was it was a bit all over the place in the sense of she was constantly trying different things. Yeah. Somebody who felt supernatural on stage, really easy, really good, really skilled at playing the moment, really clever material and just a, a great comedian. And I think, you know, she could have experienced more luck. I think she hasn't been the luckiest person, but, you know, it's really started to happen for her now. She's started to get beyond Mock the Week more, which is a big kind of yeah. gateway thing for comedians. And actually, one of the things that really helped her was that she was just tweeting during lockdown about uh, imagining that Jurgen Klopp was her her husband and he was this sort of, <laughs> you know, she was attracted by sensibleness in the face of government idiocy, right? And this became a viral set of tweets, which then became a book deal, which then, you know, she's had two books out of it now. Yeah, so yeah. Those, like, those things can happen because you know, just because you've done the other things, you've worked at your talent, you've constantly put yourself out there. Eventually, you'll find your way in front of the right people. It's 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 so interesting listening to you because um, I, I suppose obviously a graduate is um, another way of of getting in to the stand up comedy world. 
Whereas with me, as I said before, I would I would go along and I would watch these comedians do their first ever gig and they're now on to four or five thousand or whatever it is. And you're so right about luck. Um, it 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 must be very, very rewarding for you to see your results. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, some of the some of the people that I've taught would include Laura, obviously, the, mm. the noise next door, that comedy improv group. They're on this next week. <laughs> oh, there we go. I'll say hello to I'll them, say hello. <laughs> and Tom Horton, ex you know, oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, um Jimmy McGee, Tin and Dewey yeah. Webb, you know, quite quite a few. And and some people who've, who've sort of graduated more recently. And you know, it no, it, I I love it. I mean, I it's it's so I'd say there was a group that they're, they're not together anymore, but they're all performing individually still. In fact, one of them's in Noise Next Door now. But there was a group that came out of Kent a few years ago called uh, the Three Half Pints, and it was yes, Robin I've heard from, of that. Yeah. Okay, so it was Robin from the Noise who went on to become part of Noise Next Door. Yeah. Uh, Rich Franks, who who's in the Panto at the Horth in Corley every year and does. Uh, does other other Crawley rather it does other things, mm. uh, and then um, a guy um, uh, called uh, Callum. Uh, mm. I was just trying to remember his, his surname. It's Donnelly, but I was wondering. I can't remember whether he's got a stage name or not. Anyway, they did this sort of retro slapstick trio, and they were so funny. And they were already by the time they graduated, I think they'd been to the Free Fringe at least once, possibly twice. And I saw them do loads of different gigs. I saw them do stand-up clubs. I saw them do family events. I saw them do open air. Uh, and I saw them very rarely anything less than brilliant because they were so funny. And it was really weird seeing people doing stuff so based yeah, on yeah, you know, yeah. things yeah, like yeah. Laurel and Hardy and the Three yeah. Stooges and so on. And they were really good at the physical stuff, but they, were, they all had really funny personas. And then they eventually kind of went on and, and before they split up, they did some stuff for CBeebies. They were on Justin's house a couple of times, I think. <laughs> and I loved going to see them every time. I was really sad when they split up. And I'm so happy that even though they, they went their separate ways, they're all doing their own thing. Oh, I, they're all every, still fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every time, I mean, I went, I went just before the first lockdown, I think it was, I went to see... Rich's one-man show at, at the Horse, and it was just brilliant. I love going to see them, and That's you know, during, during lockdown, I remember seeing Laura's tour show, and so unfortunately, it was only on, over Zoom, but still, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so seeing her many times, she is great. Yeah, yeah. Great. That's that's wonderful. Um, you also established the British Stand Up Comedy Archive, which is based at Kent's Templeman Library, and you yeah. also have a podcast. A history of comedy in several objects based on the archive. How did the archive come about? Because um, I've got Tommy Cooper Fairs, loads of books behind me. I, I love reading biographies and it's fascinating. I, I would love to come and see it one day. <laughs> You'd be very, very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, so, so, right. So, how it came about is a very precise set of circumstances. Uh, we, um, because I used to know um, Warren Lakin and Linda Smith back in the day, Warren mm -hmm. was moving house and he had Linda's entire personal archive, including things like books she'd won at school as a school prize and wow. diaries and set lists and off-air recordings and, you know, uh, 
you know, privately made recordings of her performances from over the years and, you know, po- photos and posters and loads, you know, ridiculous amount of stuff. Mm. He, he, had, he was moving house and he didn't have space for it anymore. He said he thought of various places he could go to. He thought it could go to Kent, where Linda grew up, or it could go to Sheffield, where they were based for many years. But because I was based at Kent, Warren reached out to me and said, look, we've got this stuff. What do you think? And I thought, yes, brilliant. But I had to contact our special collections and archives department to make sure that it was OK. And the person who was in charge of it at the time said, yeah, very much so. Let's do this. So we took that in and then... The, the guy who was in charge at that point, he, he'd been in charge of the British Cartoon Archive, which you've had at the university since the 70s and its newspaper cartoons. He said that he thought that maybe newspaper cartoons wasn't quite as current as it once was. And wouldn't it be great to get a stand-up archive that was a sort of sister archive? And I said, well, that's OK, but comedians can be very protective of their own stuff and they might not be interested. So I thought I would ask some people I knew whether they would be interested in donating to such an archive. And the two people I asked were Josie Long and Mark Thomas. And they both said yes straight away. And then Warren was being interviewed on the radio about something to do with Linda. And we sort of agreed that we were going to have this stand-up comedy archive. And nothing could be set up yet. Warren sort of got a little bit ahead of the game and sort of announced that we were starting this archive. <laughs> I had to sort of let the vice chancellor know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we, we 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 started it. And Mark, I remember Mark texting me, I think it was, and saying, "Be careful what you wish for. I'm bringing a ton of stuff for you." <laughs> so he came with a, with a friend of his, and they to help him carry it. They came on the train, and they had a load of amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then you know, sometime later, later Josie gave us some stuff, and what? And then in 2015, we got some money from the university. It was the university's 50th birthday, and there was a thing, they were running these things called Beacon Projects. So we got a decent amount of money, which meant that we were able to employ somebody to look after this stuff and catalogue. Wonderful, a couple of people actually, and we at that point started properly reaching out to people, and we got really some very very exciting stuff. So an old, very old friend of mine who I've mentioned already, Tony Allen, who I yeah. think is a real under-recognised person within the history of comedy. I know that that he could divide the comedy community even when he was... Oh, he smoking. was brilliant. He was one of the but first acts I saw at the comedy store. He amazing. An amazing yeah. performer, astonishing yeah. performer. And and also a really... I I mean, I know that that some people found him difficult. I, I, mean, I love Tony. I think he's a really amazing person. Mm. truly amazing history and i really like him and i like spending time with him and tony gave us some amazing stuff you know recordings of alternative cabaret right from the very early on and then andy delator gave us some stuff oh brilliant so we we had unpublished recordings with like keith allen on and you know we've got tell you what we've got which is one of the most amazing things in the archive we've got Alexi Sale performing at the Elgin in Ludbrook Grove in early 1980. And there's a bit that he later did in a slightly altered version in the episode of The Young Ones. And it is even then so soon (laughs) into his career. It's so funny. It's unbelievable. That's incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. And so we, at the moment, we, we, we're, we're, we're not actively looking for stuff only because we don't have a dedicated archivist for it at the moment. Mm. But 
we do take stuff in every now and then. So I got some stuff from Nigel Planer earlier this year. Wow. And I got some, some more stuff from Alexi because he's given us some stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, every time we get stuff, there's always at least one item where I, my jaw drops, you know. <laughs> what, I, what I find talking to you is that you're as passionate as this, at this subject as I am. And that's what I hope is developing with my blog and my podcast. I was talking to Nick Helm and he said, what you've got here without realising is an archive. Somebody can be actually bothered to write or talk to people about their experiences of watching stand-up comedy. And that's what I like to think. It's unique. And it's and it's the same with you with the archive. It's 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 an amazing collection. Well, it looks it looks amazing on online. And um uh your passion is coming through when just talking to me and with I so want to meet you. <laughs> well we will some point come over yeah, and I'll buy you lunch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Um uh do you think you'll ever go back to performing stand-up comedy full time now? Or good God, no! no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing about it took me one go, and I said no. But <laughs> well, no, it, I tell you what, it is. I mean, I love doing what I'm doing with Funny Rabbit, the monthly club. Now. Yeah, because I say monthly; it's, it's actually only eight shows a year because it doesn't run through the year. But that's for me. That scratches the itch because. I get in front of an audience that generally we've got a bit of a kind of regular audience now. So people kind of know who I am. They're sort of tuned into me, which is the ideal circumstances. It means I've, I've got, I've, I, could, I, I feel like I've got a handle on the gig having it started in early 2019. So I've been doing it long enough that I've got a handle on how to play it. I can be playful. I'm not, I'm not scared about them judging me or yeah. being nervous particularly. We've got one on Friday is the next show and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, I've just taken over as head of school of arts at Kent, uh, which is taking me away from the teaching, which is very sad. I love teaching. Yeah. It's quite a high pressure job, but having a monthly show to kind of take my mind off it and pour my um, creativity into is just ideal. Coming back at 3am with heartburn for me to get against as cheese and onion pasty that aspect of things, I don't think, <laughs> I think that's a young man's game, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> if I was famous enough, this is it would never have happened in any reality, but if I was famous enough and popular enough so that I could do a gig every week and get enough money from that gig to live and people would come and see me and I didn't have to travel, then maybe, <laughs> right? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, who are your favourite comedians past and present? Do you have any favourites? Lots and lots and lots. Mm. Um, so if you go back a hundred years and more, probably Little Titch would oh, be brilliant. my favourite, probably music hall comedian. And then once you get into the variety era, lots really, but Max Miller, I love. I think considered as a comedian, I think Gracie Fields was amazing. Um, yeah. There was an amazing comedian called Suzette Tarry. Uh, Frankie Howard was was brilliant, I think. When you get into working men's club era stuff, probably, well, you mentioned Tom O'Connor, but Les Dawson you mentioned as well. They were both brilliant, I think. Yeah. The folk comedians, uh, obviously Billy Connolly, but also I'm actually a big fan of Jasper Carrot. Um, oh, my. 
And then when you get into alternative, I've mentioned a lot of them already, really. But um, so Alexi is just amazing comedian. Yeah. Uh, Tony, I was a huge fan of. I loved Paulie Melville as well. Just she was brilliant. Just yeah. amazing. Stuart Lee did a thing back in 2011 called Alas, the 1981 show. And she did stand up for the first time in decades and decades. And she was one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the show. I thought she was amazing. And actually, it felt quite dangerous, even in that slightly nostalgic frame. Um, go, moving on from them. I oh, Too many to mention. Really. I love Josie Long, love Bridget Christie. Obviously, oh, yeah. Stuart Lee is just one of the great be I, some of the comedians i mentioned are kind of people you think of as cool comedians but i mean i don't think sarah millican is particularly thought of as cool i just think she's a brilliant comedian a really I, I, I first saw her in a tiny hut play about 20 people and yeah. away from the tv she was extraordinary absolutely extraordinary she, i just think she's i think she's i, I love her angle i love her yeah. voice i love her comic voice yeah. I love her writing. Uh, I love the way she talks to the audience in her shows. I love the way that she gets that the mum has taken her grown up daughter and the mum is now talking to Sarah Millican and she's confessing something amazing that her daughter clearly didn't know. I think there's something magical about that. And I think it's profoundly feminist. Yeah. In yeah, yeah. a you know, delightful, life enhance enhancing, funny, funny way. School it is, is outrageous. It, 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 down kind of a way. It's a yeah, yeah. Memory. Yeah, she is brilliant. My uh, first ever memory of watching comedy was Morecambe and Wise. And as a family, I've never seen anybody since where everybody of every age range was laughing at them at Christmas. And I never got to see them live. And I was so gutted. I've read everything about them. I've seen the plays. I've met Gary Morecambe. I'm hoping he's going to come on here and talk about, about his wonderful dad. But one needed the other and, and all the analysing of them. They were, they were just an extraordinary thing. But I did see the two Ronnies, Les Dawson, Tommy Cooper, Ken Dodd in the 70s. And then into the 80s, the first bill on the comedy store I saw was um, Linda Smith, uh, Phil Jupiter, Richard Morton, Steve Gribbin and Charles Fleischer, who went on to voice Roger Rabbit. He was never heard of again because he went to Hollywood. But just right the way through the alternative movement and then... Um, into uh, um, uh, I saw Peter Kay in a tiny club. He was he was fourth on the bill of five comedians, and I laughed so hard at him uh, that I missed the fifth act. And the fifth, I had to go and apologise to Dave Gorman a few years later because he was the fifth act, and I and I, and I saw him again. He was great, but um, it's just I mean, wonderful. So, so many to mention. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. okay, the more you. You know, but the more we're talking, the more I'm thinking of Ross Noble, Eddie Izzard, yeah. so, so many. And we haven't even touched America yet. So, no, no. so one, of, one of the highlights for me was um, Bill Hicks. I saw Bill Hicks in London just before he died. He was extraordinary. Amazing. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a section in my blog called the, called the Ones That Got Away, and I've written about 25 of them. Dave Allen was another one. I almost had a chance to go and see him. Norman Wisdom, Frankie Howard, like you say. Dave Allen is another favourite. I did oh, see him. Just amazing. Just, just incredible. Um, can you please tell me 
about your book on alternative comedy. How did that come about? Because I've been watching stand-up comedy for nearly 50 years. And how do you think comedy has evolved in this time? So what happened was I was actually starting to plan a different book project, which I still haven't done and may never do. But what, when all that stuff was coming into the archive, the thing is, if you know about something, then you know what the significance of something is. So, you know, if you start getting early live recordings of the Lecky sale or, you know, whatever it is, you know, wait, this is actually gold dust or, you know, you get. And, and one of the things we had was um, a brilliant collection from a, a venue in London that ran in the 80s and 90s called the Meccano Club. Yeah. That was donated by Monica Babinska, who ran it for many years. And it's just brilliant. It's good. The bookings book is brilliant. It's like it's all the comedians who were booked from 1988 through to 94, I think it is. And it's handwritten and you can see how much they were paid and wow. you know, all that kind of stuff. And then it's got phone numbers, including mine, because I used to perform there. <laughs> and, 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 and she said, oh, you know, you maybe should do a book about this. And then I, I, I think it was maybe when we started, get, maybe I'd have got Andy De La Tour's stuff in. I was like, OK, nobody's written an academic book about alternative comedy. Somebody's got to write that book. I've got to write that book. <laughs> circumstances, circumstances are telling me what to do. Fate has so really put its jabbing finger into my forehead and yeah, told me yeah. to do this. And I, so I just start. Well, the, I, I did lots of things. I mean, I, I started collecting more material that I, a bit because I have my own collection of stuff. I started collecting a few more bits. I started talking to comedians, interviewing people. In some cases, comedians I'd interviewed before, some, some cases several times, but interviewing them specifically about, about alternative comedy. Um, I, and then I started really, really going through the material, listening to all the, the digitised recordings and, you know, um, really looking through the... I mean, I still... I, you know, I haven't looked at every item in the archive. It's too big. Nobody... Well, you could have done that, but it's such a big project. So... Started looking through all of that, making notes, um, and and I just it was a real labour of love, and I loved working on it. And the only painful bit was I wrote, I think thirty five thousand words over the the limit that I was supposed to write. And that's having, passion. That really is. It's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. It's, cut, cut it's just. It's so good because once you get cracking on something that you love, you, it just all flows out and, and, and you're away. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think, you know, things came out that I hadn't been aware of before. You know, it made me, even though it was a subject I knew quite a lot about, it made me rethink it in many different mm. ways. And I think, you know, what's been nice has been, you know, it's had a really nice review on Chortle, had a really nice review on uh, Beyond the Joke, you know, uh, Bruce Dessau's uh, blog. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, uh, the comedians I know who've read it, I mean, you know, Jim Barkley and Andy Latour were really keen on it. They would sort of, you know, and, and so, yeah, I, it, it, I, and I got to meet people I'd never met before in some cases as well, which was brilliant. I mean, you know, some brilliant experiences. And, and since then, I mean, I've just just come out. There's been a, a what's called an edited collection, a second volume on alternative comedy, where wow. I've written 
I've written or I've co-written the introduction. I'm also one of the editors. I've written a chapter and I've written a couple of other bits in it. Um, but like then there's chapters written by different people, including one written by Brian Mulligan, who was Steve Gribben's far, former partner in in skint video yeah 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 he's been he's steve gribby and he was wonderful yeah i mean steve's such a lovely guy yeah and uh and uh yeah i mean just just getting some of this stuff out there has been a real delight the only thing that really really hurts about it is academic publishers now don't try and sell books to normal people so they price them at institutional level so my book first came out, I think it was priced £78 hardback. And everybody was going, why is it this expensive? I wish it wasn't. If I had any power at all to make it cheaper, I would do that. Jim yeah. Barkley kindly emailed the publisher and said, this needs to be cheaper. Everybody yeah. would love this book. Yeah. And they said, oh, well, it'll come out on paperback. But even as paperback, it's 20, 20 odd quid. And I just wish it was cheaper. I don't understand it. Well, it is on my Christmas list, my friend. And when I when I'm when I meet you, I'd love for you to sign it. Please. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's so interesting because um, there are there, there there are so many wonderful stories. When when I was listening to you before, a story came to mind when I first met Harry Hill who I've loved for the 30, 40 years. Yeah, another favourite of mine. Oh, he's just, he, he, was, he, he was extraordinary. And I, I first saw him downstairs at the King's Head, which is a wonderful comedy Very club. Funny, in the yeah. And he was late for the gig. He pushed past me, jumped up onto the stage and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry I'm late. I had to have a testicle brought down. And he got a laugh. And then he said, from Derby. And I've never forgotten that. And it's just about the best opening line I've ever heard. And when I met him 30 years later, I told him this. And he shook my hand and he said, I still keep telling that routine. Yeah. <laughs> but it but it but it's like little nuggets like that 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 are so joyous. It's gold, like you say. Um and 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 I'm so I'm so sorry. This is the last question I'm going to ask. But what do you think is the future of stand-up comedy? Because there, every so often, you get wonderful comedians, and 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 the joy is looking for the originality in the performance. I think certainly for me, because I've seen so many over the years. You know. Completely agree. I mean, I think I think when you see somebody where you go, oh. We're not in Kansas anymore. Like, I love that moment where you just go, this is something I've not seen before. Yeah. I love that moment. Um, I don't know. I mean, to get slightly backtrack, um, the thing about how has comedy evolved, I mean, that was a step change, really, that alternative comedy moment. It wasn't that people hadn't done that kind of confessional style of comedian, uh, you know, that, that sort of lifestyle-based sort of personal testimony thing. Dave Allen had done it a bit. Jasper Carrot, some of those folk comedians have done it, but for it to happen in such a thoroughgoing way, and for for that for that idea of okay, it's got to be self-written, and also but the, the the political thing as well that we don't want to do sexist and racist stuff. That was, I mean, we might look back and say that was a bit simplistic now, but but that was an important moment, and I think it changed when people say where are all the left-wing comedians, and sorry, where are all the right-wing comedians answer in the 1970s because it was very very rare 
for a comedian to be left wing in the 1960s. Yeah. It wasn't completely unknown, but it's extraordinarily rare. And it sort of, you know, so that was a big shift. I don't think we'll ever get a shift quite like that again. It won't, totally be, a big, it won't be a big shift because the comedy industry is too established. There wasn't a thing called the comedy industry at that point. What there, what there was was working men's clubs and the variety theatres had gone and there were comedians who played working men's clubs and then there were things, there was TV and radio comedy. But there, were, there, weren't, there, was, there wasn't such a thing as the comedy club. It just didn't exist in the UK before the comedy store opened in 79. The nearest, I suppose, would have been something like the Establishment Club in the early 60s. But that wasn't a comedy club like, like we would recognise it. it, was a, it they had a repertory company and it was a repertory of satirical sketches. And yes, they would have Lenny Bruce on there for a season and they would have Frankie Howard on there for a season. But it still wasn't organised like we would have a comedy club. And so that you can't reinvent that. That's happened now. Every now and then you'll get a wave of something new. So perhaps 15 years ago, you had that wave of, I think um, it was somebody, Tim Jones in The Guardian referred to them as DIY comedian. So it was Pappy's Fun Club, as was then, and then Josie Long and people like that. And I think that was a moment. But of course, then they have their own thing and perhaps it changes and evolves and changes into something else. I think the big difference in the comedy scene now from when I was in it is it's more variegated. Yeah. Like the people who are your club comics who play, you know, your Friday and Saturday night comedy clubs, you know, with, with hen parties and blah, blah, blah. And then you have the slightly more alternative people who do that. And then there's a lot of crossover between those. And then you have the little specialist areas like you have the free speech comedy nights or you have the more left wing comedy nights or you have the black circuit. That's a really important circuit we haven't even touched on yet which I think is a really amazing area of comedy and I think doesn't get its, its due. I mean, somebody like Mo Gilligan is an extraordinary oh, is amazing. So happy yeah. that he's, you know, made it so big and, and yeah. sort of cast, I think what he did, um, uh, Black, British and Funny, that documentary was so important to sort of making that point that we've had brilliant British black comedians but have been ignored really by a lot of TV producers. So I think I think the, the change is it's never going to have the seismic revolution that happened in, in 79, 80, but there'll always be new trends that come in. And I think predicting those is going to be hard. I mean, to take one example of going back to your thing about a comedian who does things in a slightly different way. I think Bridget Christie is a really interesting comedian. I love her work. I think she's super funny in a way that's really distinctive to her. Totally agree, yeah, yeah. But even her, like, you couldn't predict, because she started off with those silly costume shows where she dressed up as an ant or, you know, King Charles or whatever, you know, and and, and then it did, you know, a bit for her and, and did the yeah. sort of feminist thing, but very much with the same silliness that she'd used before. And it, it changed in something different and I think I've just I just think she's super exciting to watch. She, is, she is so original you never know what you're going to get next with her and that's the exciting element as well as being exceptionally funny yeah and I think I think something like Josie is an amazing comedian and again yeah. it's really evolved over the years and 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 Stuart Stuart Lee you know I mean the thing with Stuart is you go along expecting to be surprised but he still surprises you in a way you didn't expect. <laughs> that's very, that's spot on. <laughs> I, I, have, I haven't got tickets to see the latest thing that he's running in at the Leicester. I think you've got really to do that because, 
it, I, I try and not ever miss a show that he does. Oh, he's, he's he, I mean, I think he's a genius. I really do. He, I, he's I, amazing. I just think he builds, he, he has a line and then he can build it up and build it up and build it up. And you're just, just so in on what he's saying, as well as relating, recognizing. It's extraordinarily funny. He's just a, he's just wonderful at what he's wonderful. Because it's, it's really intelligent and it's full of kind of levels of irony. Yeah. But it's really approachable. It's not like yeah. its own yeah. arse at all. It's, it's yeah, exactly. Really, yeah. Anybody yeah. could enjoy it. And, yeah. and, it, and it's kind of, it's weirdly art house, but at the same time, it's proper gut wrenchingly funny. Yeah. Some, the, yeah, yeah. some of the moments that I've watched where I've been properly helpless with laughter at things that he's done, like, the thing in the 41st Best Comedian Tour where he was he, he was talking about how the British public's favourite thing ever is Del Boy falling through a bar. <laughs> he's, he's lying on his side with the back to the audience in a low-energy, pissed-off way, describing <laughs> the British public, you think this is the funniest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> Del Boy falling through a bar. And pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to the point where you're just watching it and you just don't know why it's funny anymore. You're just laughing and crying and helpless with laughter. Just amazing. Amazing. Are you, are you are you as bad as me going to comedy every night or do you go um, to a lot of comedy? Because because your knowledge of it is extraordinary. I, 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 go, I go as much as I can. Mm. Um, and, and how it tends to pattern is I definitely don't go every night. Um, I probably don't go every week because it depends what's there. Yeah. But what I often do is... So, like, in a couple of weeks, I think I've got maybe three or four in, in, a, in a week. Right. And, and that's how, how it works. Um, and, I mean, one of the things I love about doing Funny Rabbit is seeing comedians that I haven't seen before, you know? Yeah. Um, so the first time I saw Beck Hill live was at Funny Rabbit, and she was so brilliant. The drawing, it was super. Yeah, yeah, yeah super. Yeah. And what a lovely yeah. person as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, so that, that's always great. You know, when, when a comedian comes on to do that, that I've not seen before or heard of, you know, uh, that kind of keeps you in touch with who's out there. Um, and uh, I, I'm just, I'm just starting to get back into it, properly back into it post lockdown, you know? Uh, I did see a, quite a lot of lockdown shows, but- Did you, did you do a lot of online gigs? Did you, did you watch- uh, I did a few, yeah. I mean, we did, for Funny Rabbit, we did weirdly, uh, we did four different formats from the beginning of the pandemic to the end of the last lockdown. So the first one we did was straight to Facebook Live, but no audience, no live right. audience in there. That was really weird. Uh, then the next ones we did, I think we did a couple of socially distanced, but in real life gigs. Then we did ones where we filmed it in the theatre with no audience and then put that out as a stream later on. Very weird. Uh, seeing Glenn Wall doing his <laughs> high-energy routines to nobody, and I could hear his voice, you know, his powerful voice, echoing <laughs> down the corridors. It was like art, really. And yeah. then the, the final one we did was just a Zoom one with the audience in there, with the, in the Zoom with you. And that, that all the socially distanced ones were my favourites. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't swap either of those for a proper gig. I, you know, oh no, 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 no. When when they when when they were done well, they were done really well. But when they yeah. first started, um, uh, there was no audio. 
it, it, it was all on Zoom. There was no audio. So I was sitting here laughing at four walls really loudly. And I thought I was going to be taken away. But once they put the audio on, that you could see the comedians who were very good at doing it online, patching the beat of the joke, chatting to the audience. They were effortless. And it got really good. So I would go to... Happy Mondays with Sean James. I'd go to Warsby Comedy. I'd go to the Irishman Abroad with Jarlath Regan. And it was wonderful, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, it was such a horrible time, obviously, to live through because yeah. we all had to stay in. And it, and there was still a rapport, but I'm exactly with you. I, I just love the experience of seeing something live because you're in the moment, you're ready to be like, to, to just sit and what's as I said at the start of the, of the interview what is not to love you know it's it's such a specialist medium um this has been an absolute joy you've been a wonderful guest I'm so looking forward to meeting you very soon I wish yeah. you every success with whatever you do because you're 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 a very intelligent funny um wonderful comedian you've you've oh. you've you've made me laugh your stories are wonderful your teaching is fantastic thank you so much for your time it's been oh a no thank you so, like i said at the beginning thanks for inviting me I, I any excuse to talk rich i mean that you know it's, it's <laughs> i'm it's, the same <laughs> you know i mean I, I love it and i love talking about comedy it's 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 a real it what it is it's like people when comedy works well, it looks like it's just natural, like breathing. Yeah. Well, there's so much skill and craft involved in it, and art as well, you know, artistry. Yeah. And I think, like, taking something and not seeing it for granted, but seeing it in all those different dimensions, but still loving it, you yeah. know, still enjoying it and, on that visceral level. That's the magic of it, you know. Yeah. We, we I try to break it down in, um, you know, you're looking for originality, the, when I when I go and see comedians, there are pun comedians, there are people with a point, there are storytellers, there are idiots. It's all sorts of wonderful things that we positively love in life, and life is so difficult. So as I say, what is not to love? You know, it's it's life can be so difficult. You know. It's it's helped me enormously having the interest and the passion for it. And I can clearly see with you as well. Thank you so much for your time. As I say, I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. And uh, all the best with whatever you do. Thank you for being a great guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.